And it always, always, always impresses me how when you take the time to ask the questions of the people whose company you just bought, the volume of high quality responses you always get. And so it enlivens them and it gives us something to work with in terms of refining the business plan and the hypotheses that we used in order to buy the company. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Few business leaders have more experience in M&A than Brad Jacobs. Over a more than four-decade career, he created several billion-dollar corporations, and he built his most recent three largely through acquisitions. United Rentals, an industrial equipment rental company, United Waste Systems, involved in garbage collection, and XBO, the logistics company he currently leads. At both United Rentals and United Waste, he executed more than 200 deals each. And at XBO, he's created a digital forward logistics leader in an industry that has tended to lag in technology adoption. Brad will soon transition from CEO to executive chairman of XBO, and we thought this made it a good time to discuss the lessons he's learned over the course of all the deals he's led. Brad sat down with Andy West, a senior partner based in our Boston office, who co-leads our M&A practice globally. Andy, over to you. Brad, thank you again for joining us today. Look, as an M&A guy, I couldn't be more thrilled uh, to talk to you, and, and thanks again for, uh, for being here. I've had the pleasure of reading a lot about your your career in M&A, and I want to start just on the magnitude, right? I think if I add it up, you've done probably almost 500 deals, right, in the course of your executive tenure. Can you believe it, right? I mean, that's a big number even for an investment banker or a professional. Any reflections just on the number of deals, right, and the volume? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to your podcast. I very much appreciate it. And in terms of the volume of M&A, you know, I did those 500 or so acquisitions between United Waste and United Rentals. But here in the last decade at XPL Logistics, we only, and I'm putting only in quotation marks, did 18 acquisitions. And so it slowed down a little bit, but we still <laughs> figured out ways to create immense value with fewer acquisitions. That's great. I want to spend a little time talking about the journey. One of the things I've noticed in your career, as you mentioned, you've always been a business builder, like just prolific business builder, and you've always been a deal guy and quite active in M&A. Do you think these two things are inextricably linked? I think M&A is more than just buying a company. Uh, M&A means having a strategy, first of all, that what are you going to do with all these acquisitions? What's the compelling strategic rationale for buying a company? And then having discipline at looking at lots and lots of opportunities at the same time, and then consciously selecting in a very deliberate, intentional way, the very, very, very best opportunities that you have. And then negotiating those in, in a way that is a win-win deal. If you're going to create immense shareholder value, you've got to price those acquisitions, right? And then you've got to integrate those acquisitions. I mean, buying a company is signing a document that the lawyers give you with a few dozen pages and wiring the money and you own the business. It's not the hardest thing in the world. The real work starts after you own the business and integrating the company and harmonizing the cultures and getting the technology all the same and getting all the shared services integrated and, and getting the customers to buy in and making all the employees that you've acquired, so to speak, happy and engaged and involved and buying into the vision. So I think M&A is a tool in the toolkit, and it's not the only tool required 
to get the job done. When you're defining the job as creating a, an integrated company that creates lots and lots of value for the shareholders. I love that. Uh, we always say that m is just a tool for strategy. That resonates a lot. Maybe walk through the differences, right, to help kind of articulate how a change in strategy or a change in context changes the way that you use M&A. So you mentioned, you know, United Waste and United Rentals. Those were very high volume situations, hundreds of deals in each of your tenures. It seems like it was a roll up strategy, a high volume strategy, but maybe some of the differences and nuances between those two. And then I would love to pair that against what you're doing today, what you've done in the last several years at XPO. Well, United Waste was a roll-up. So the, the strategy at United Waste was to go into tertiary markets, not even secondary markets, to go into really remote locations and try to buy up all the landfill capacity and then go to the collection companies that were hauling waste to those landfills and buy them. And once you, we bought all those collection companies, we were able to pick up the waste in a much more efficient way. So, so density and, and scale is really helpful in the waste business, and M&A played a big part of that. But doing it in a deliberate way where we had regions. We had regions in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We had it in Appalachia. We had it in rural Mississippi where we were the big guy in those areas in terms of having the capacity, having the landfill capacity and the hauling capability. And we're able to do it in a more profitable way than the companies we bought because of our size, because of our scale, because of our systems, because of our technology, because of our, our approach to the whole business. So that strategy worked really well. We had about a 55% CAGR on earnings. And not surprisingly, we had about a 55% CAGR on the stock price too. We outperformed the S&P 500 at United Waste by 5.6x during, during the time I ran the business until I sold it to what's now called Waste Management. In 1997. Now, you asked about United Rentals. United Rentals was partly a roll-up, but it was also a roll-out. What I mean by that is people pay lots of attention to the 250 or so acquisitions we did. And people say, wow, how would you possibly do two or three acquisitions a week? Well, we had a big team. We we're very organized. We did everything in a standardized way. But where we really made the money was on the roll-out, where we also opened hundreds of Greenfield locations, de novo, uh, purely from scratch, where we leased a facility, uh, put, up, put equipment in place, staffed up appropriately, got a sales force in place, and we were in business. And the reason why we made so much higher ROIC on the roll out than on the roll up is that the IC in ROIC was much lower. We weren't paying a, a big multiple of EBITDA to buy the business. We were just getting into the business. So, so that, that strategy worked really well too. Although, to be fair, we only, I'm saying only in a modest way, we only outperformed the S&P 500 by about 2.2x at United Rentals than we did at, at United Waste. I like the nuance between the rollout and the roll-up. And one thing that I've certainly experienced, particularly uh, in growth-focused M&A, is that it can be challenging for companies to divorce a deal model from a strategy or a business plan, right? And so meaning we're going to buy an asset and that's going to give us a foothold, but it's just a foothold. In addition, by owning that asset, we can now invest around it organically. Can you talk a little bit about how you manage those trade-offs or those discussions as an executive team on 
you know, what's going to go into the deal model? How do you think about justifying the deal and tracking that, but then also investing around the asset? You have to do both. You can't do M&A in a vacuum. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't create value. It's just random willy-nilly. You do have to have a strategy. And that strategy has to center around how am I able, as a result of this business plan, to provide a superior service to customers so they choose us rather than choosing a competitor. And every decision that you make when you're embarking on a big plan like this has to be keeping that in mind. How is this going to help the customer? How is this going to make us more of a a quality leader for the customer? How is this going to make us more of a service leader for the customer? How is this going to make us have more capabilities to offer to the customer? How is this going to make us a cost leader so our cost structure is superior to the competition and we could charge maybe the same price as a competitor, but our margin is higher. So there's lots of ingredients that have to go into the planning of the business. And then the M&A strategy has to match that strategy. Absolutely. One question I have, just to reflecting on your comment on two to three deals a week, talk a little bit about your calendar and your role. I'm sure there are a lot of executives listening to this thinking, you know, how could he possibly do that and do his day job? So what advice would you give or what reflections do you have in terms of just spending your time and where you focus your time and attention? The CEO always gets more credit than the CEO deserves because all these ventures are the result of many, many people, large teams doing lots of work. And they're not very visible to the outside community. So the CEO is the main spokesperson for the company and and gets the credit, but it's not fair. The credit really is dispersed amongst many, many people doing, doing due diligence, doing the actual negotiation, doing the integration, doing the technology, doing the whole back office, realigning the sales and marketing territories and the sales force effectiveness, everything that's involved in, in having a, a successful acquisition. That's a huge number of people. Now, in terms of time, I'm glad you mentioned that because There's only two things you manage as a CEO. There's only two things that a management team needs to control very well in order to create a lot of shareholder value. And that's allocation of capital and time. Time is very, very important. It's very limited. You have so many employees and so many hours in the day. You multiply those out. So the the CEO and the senior management team's job is to be in touch with every element of the organization in every part, every business unit, every geography, every component of the organization, and making sure that they understand the big vision. What are we trying to accomplish here as a company overall? And what is their role in achieving that vision? And then you have to have accountability. So managing time is is very, very critical. You can have a lot of people and waste a lot of time. You can have fewer people and use time efficiently with proper leadership and proper management and create a ton of more shareholder value. One of the things I've noticed in talking to lots of different clients about M&A and M&A decision-making efficiently, right, as you talk about time, is alignment, right? Alignment on strategy, alignment on what good looks like. Can you talk about what you did to make that effective and to drive that alignment and get that speed uh, that was required to do this kind of volume of M&A? couple things. First of all, you have to get very clear in your mind what the strategy is. 
you have to have crystal clear visualization of the future in your, in your own mind. The senior management team has to know where we're going. That's number one. Number two, you've got to communicate, 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 and then over-communicate on top of that. You have to communicate through various channels. You have to communicate digitally. You have to communicate live. You have to communicate on Zooms. You have to communicate in town halls. You have to communicate in writing. Then the communications have to be precise. If you have a large organization with thousands and thousands of employees, it's a tall order. It's a, it's a big task to get everyone in that organization to understand yeah. who we are and where we're going and how we're going there. And that's through communication. One of the things I always talk to my clients about, particularly as they get going on a larger deal where the integration planning time just due to regulation is going to be a bit long. Uh, and obviously the implementation will take some time as well. I always say on communication, you know, what you've decided today is not going to actually sink in to somebody else for another 18 months. And between now and then, you're going to have to keep saying it and saying it and saying it. And it is a real challenge, right, with M&A, that you're so far in front of the strategy, it's easy to forget, right, what other people don't know. I agree with that. Hey, let's move from volume to value, right? You talked a little bit about doing only 18 to 20 deals over the last decade, which I think most people would say are a lot, but relatively speaking, it's a bit a bit less uh, with XBO. And one of the things I'm just ex- incredibly impressed with is, is the revenue trajectory, right? From 175 million to, I think last year is around 13 billion in revenue. And M&A was a big part of that. And when I look at what you've done across trucking and logistics, I mean, there's a lot of uh, adjacency work that you did here. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between the last 10 years with XPO and, and the deal making before that? Well, at XPO, most of our acquisitions were larger. Our biggest one at United Rentals was about a $1.2 billion pooling of interest when the gap rules had poolings allowed. But most of the acquisitions were much smaller than that in the hundreds of millions or tens of millions of of dollars. At XPO, we had several acquisitions that were larger than that, and and they became transformative to the company. So I'm specifically referring to, for example, Norbert Dantrasangel in Europe, uh, or Conway in the United States, or Newbreed, also in the United States. These were much larger acquisitions. That's really the difference, I think, the major difference that we had between my two previous companies and XPO was the, the size of the deals. And, and how did that, did that change the way you thought about the deals kind of from, from a diligence and evaluation perspective at all? The smaller ones are more difficult than the larger <laughs> ones because the smaller ones, it's family owned businesses. They're not publicly traded. They're not private equity backed. They're not gap financials. You can't look up their 8Ks and their proxy and really get a lot of information that way. You have to spend more time doing diligence, hanging out with the owners and getting to know them and, and talking. It's, it's a more labor-intensive uh, discovery of information that you need for your diligence. On the larger deals, particularly publicly traded ones, you have a bigger advantage because, from, a knowledge, from a diligence point of view because all of that's in the public domain. It just takes a long time to go through everything and come up with lots of follow-up questions and then get the answers to those questions. But the basic detective work is already there. It's already done. Let's talk a little bit about integration then. Uh, you've mentioned it several times, right? I mean, it's it's a big piece of the puzzle, actually. Creating the value is the reason why you do M&A, right? Talk to me a little bit about technology. It's been a big part of the XPO strategy as I looked at materials. How did you think about 
you know, technology and what lessons can you share about how do you optimize and improve technology infrastructure in the course of an integration? Two words, fast and standardized. You want to get one ERP as soon as possible. So you can be closing the books as fast as you can right away after buying the company. You want to have one CRM. You want to have one HR system. Every system that you have, it's much better to be standardized and do everyone be on the same exact platform. You get cleaner numbers. You get faster numbers. You can share information. It's just all around makes life much more easy and, and efficient. And you want to be quick. You don't want that to dilly-dally along. Some things when you do integration, you want to be a little more gentle. You want to be slow. Or more. On, on integration on the platform, you want to rip off the Band-Aid and boom, get on the same system because you're not functioning at full level until you're on one platform for each one of those aspects of the technology. And let's talk about the other side of the coin. You mentioned it, some of the softer things. I, and I, I don't actually want to call it soft because one of the things you've talked about is a performance and accountability culture, right? So there's some real edge to that. Obviously, bringing in people and acquiring adjacencies, you know, kind of bringing them along that journey is really important. So what did you do specifically to help build that culture through M&A? In every acquisition that we did, we were very careful to be extremely respectful to the people that we were getting in the acquisition. And we never went into an acquisition on a high horse in an arrogant attitude, thinking that we had all the answers and here's the way and it's my way or the highway, nothing of that at all. In fact, just the opposite. Every acquisition that we did, we immediately reached out to the organization as soon as we were legally permitted to do that. And we asked them, what do they think we should do? We picked their brains and we found it was such a powerful thing to do. It is empowering. And in many cases, in fact, most cases, Frontline employees, middle managers, even senior managers were not asked by the owners or, the, or the, the CEO or the president of the companies we were buying their opinions. And as a result of that, they felt a little checked out. We did just the opposite. We would do questionnaires. We would do town halls. We would do one-on-one -on -one interviews. We would do group meetings. And we would ask a, a series of basic questions, which is, what are you doing great that we'd be crazy to change? And then we'd say, what are you doing that's not so great that maybe the previous owners were crazy not to change and we should change? What's your best idea to improve the company? And we would get an avalanche every single time we bought a company and we went in and we asked those questions and then shut up and listened really carefully, paid close attention to what they were saying, document what they were saying, discuss it at depth, ask follow-up questions very, very powerful, powerful method of integration that accomplishes really two things. Number one, you get buy-in from the field, from the organization that, okay, I'm part of this. I'm part of this thing and I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to put my resume out there. I, I want to be part of this thing because it sounds like there's some real momentum in the company and the company is going to be a better company. And the second thing is they had great ideas. They had fantastic ideas of how to improve the company. And it always, always, always impresses me how when you take the time to ask the questions of the people whose company you just bought, the volume of high quality responses you always get. And so it enlivens them and it gives us something to work with in terms of refining the business plan and the hypotheses that we used 
in order to buy the company? I've noticed that a lot of executives are afraid to ask that question because they don't want to make promises that they can't keep, right? The question of what could we do better or, or how would you change our organization or even your organization in the context of the of the integration. What gave you the courage to, to do that? And how did you make sure that you that employees felt like you were following up and fulfilling the promises that they may have thought you explicitly or implicitly made by simply asking the question? Well, that's a good point because if you ever make a promise, and that's not even necessarily in the context of an acquisition, but in any part of the company, if management ever makes a promise and doesn't follow through with that promise, that's a terrible thing. That has hugely negative consequences to your ability to lead the company, to have the trust of the organization. Often when I did acquisitions, I would say, I'm only going to make you one promise, and I promise this 100%. I'm going to try my best, but I'm going to mess up some things, and just give me a break. <laughs> give me a break, <laughs> give me some time, and feel free to tell me when I'm messing stuff up. But I never promise that I'm going to take every piece of advice or every input that people give me. Yeah, yeah. Integration can be very process heavy, particularly in a large one, because there's just a lot to do. How did you balance the need for process rigor, but the need to listen, the need to be able to be flexible during an integration? Those are not only compatible, those are mutually helpful. To be out there and, and involving the people who actually run the business day to day in developing the business plan is absolutely important in order to develop what the integration and optimization plan is. Now, in terms of executing, in terms of tactics of executing on the plan, you have to be organized because you're absolutely right. There's a lot of stuff to do when you buy a company and there's not a lot of time to do it if you want to not skip a beat. So you've got to be organized. You've got to have lists. You have to have tasks assigned to one person. They can have other people helping them, but I've always found that if you have one person owning each task and that person is accountable for achieving that task on time, then you're more likely to achieve it and achieve it on time as opposed to having a group responsible for it. And you have to have a regular cadence of checking in at certain points of the integration and on certain parts of the integration that's daily. In certain parts of the integration, it's more than daily. It's, it's, it's several times per day for things that are urgent, urgent stuff. Thank you. Very, very clear. Very helpful. Let me talk about another question I think executives struggle with, particularly after growing, uh, and that is divesting. And I know you've been asked before about spinning off parts of the business that you've acquired. How have you thought about those kinds of decisions in the context of M&A and the decision-making associated with separating assets? The purpose of the senior leadership team primarily, not solely, but primarily is to create shareholder value. Sometimes the way to create shareholder value, for us at least, has been to buy companies. And we bought a lot of companies. Sometimes it's been to sell off part of the companies that we bought or even some of the companies that we bought after we improved them and they no longer fit into the strategy as it evolved. Sometimes it was to spin off parts of the company like we did with GXO last year and that we're doing with RxO this year. Sometimes the way to create great shareholder value was to buy back stock. And we did a $2 billion stock buyback a few years ago. Sometimes that deleveraging, maybe you levered up to do a great acquisition, but hey, you need to bring your leverage down. 
raising equity is dilutive. Sometimes selling part of the businesses that you bought is less dilutive and actually accretive and maybe more strategically sensible. So it, you have to be flexible. You have to be adaptable. You have to keep your eyes open, your antennas up, ears listening very carefully to changing circumstances. You have to be sensitive to threats, to opportunities. Let me ask one other question. We spent a bunch of time at McKinsey looking at M&A failure rates, but there are a lot of people who are just inherently afraid of M&A, the execution challenges associated with it, the challenges of finding good assets and turning those into integration. And there's always the statistic out there that failure rates of M&A are too high. You've done a lot of deals. You've lived through this more than most people, uh, almost any other executive out there today. What would you say about M&A and the riskiness and the risk profile of M&A? I think it is risky. And I think their management teams are right to be afraid. And I've been afraid every single acquisition I did. I always am thinking about what could go wrong with this acquisition? What, what would be the things that would make it into a bad acquisition instead of a good acquisition? And address those risks, mitigate those risks. But M&A is not a riskless or even low-risk uh, strategy. M&A is much more risky than good old-fashioned organic revenue growth and good old sales and marketing. That's a, a much lower risk uh, proposition. Now, there's less upside. M&A can be, if done correctly, can be hugely creative and create tons of shareholder value. One thing, as you look to the future, you're now handing over the CEO role to Mario Herrick, who I understand was the third person you hired, and you're about to become executive chairman. What advice would you give to boards and other chairmen, right, about M&A and how they should engage and support the management team as they think about different M&A strategies? I think M&A should be considered because it gives you the opportunity to get market share overnight, it gives you opportunity to get scale, and in most businesses, scale helps a lot. It gives you the opportunity to leverage your SG&A off a much larger revenue base. M&A gives you the ability to attract talent, maybe talent you wouldn't get otherwise. Uh, M&A gives you the ability to put together a technology organization that is state-of-the-art because you have the size in order to support that. So there's a, there's a lot of advantages to M&A. But I'd be careful about it too. And may, I, I would not, if I was a board member and my management had not done a lot of M&A, I'd be a little skeptical. In fact, I'd be a lot skeptical. I'd give a lot of oversight. On the other hand, I would look at the track records. And if it's a management team that's done a lot of M&A and has created a lot of value from that M&A, I'd give them a real long leash. I would let them go for it and make it happen. So Brad, what's next? Well, at XPO, what's next is Mario's going to take my role as CEO. I'm going to demote myself up to executive chairman. So I'll still be involved, but much smaller percentage of my time. And I'm going to do my next big thing. I'm going to look at large industries with big TAMs. I'm looking at healthcare. I'm looking at financial services. I'm looking at technology. I'm looking at fintech. I'm looking at all kinds of industrial services. So I'm, look, I'm casting a wide net. And I've barely started the hunt because I, I still have a full-time paying job here. So, so, but, and usually, not usually, always, where I've ended up in these searches in the past is different than where I started and where I thought I'd end up. But I think I'll, do, uh, I'll be interested to study stuff that is, applies the skill set that I happen to have. And, and so that could be something with a lot of M&A component to it. That could be something that's either a, a, a roll up or a roll out. So roll up meaning M&A. Roll out could be one of two things. That could be something that is 
sales and marketing and just going out there and getting Salesforce effectiveness and getting a company that's got a great service or product to sell and just penetrating the market more. Or that could be what I call uh, rinse, rinse, wash, and repeat in terms of what I did at uh, United Rentals, which was to form a template of a building or a structure or an office or a location or a branch and just keep opening those all around the country. So, Or in some cases, in some businesses, it would be appropriate to do that outside of the country, do that globally. So I think the likeliest scenario, but it may not be, is either roll up or roll out. But I'll also look for things that are fixer-uppers. I've done plenty of fixer-uppers before in the past. And, and I'll look at things that have a lot of wind to the back in terms of growth trends. Uh, I'm going out to Silicon Valley to meet with some of my VC friends. I want to see what's in their portfolio. I'm talking to some of my private equity friends about things that are in their portfolio. I'm talking to some of our largest shareholders about companies that are in their portfolio that would be great to turbocharge the business with a stronger management team. And I'll put a billion or $2 billion of my own equity into it, fix up the balance sheet, give some growth capital. So I'm looking at lots of different things. And I'm excited about this part of the the hunt. It sounds exciting. How are you finding the environment out there as you're looking at trying to find a new uh, opportunity for investment? Certainly, the volatility can sometimes lead to opportunity. But uh, what's the uh, what's the overall uh, temperature as you're uh, putting your toe in the water? The temperature is great. It's like being in the Mediterranean in the, in the springtime. It's, <laughs> there's lots of opportunities because the world is so big and there's so many changes. And you have, look, you have all these SPACs, for example, that were. $10 a share six months ago, and now they're $1.80 a share or $2 a share. And was, a lot of those SPACs, they, they should not have been SPACed in the first place, and they're worth $1.80 a share. But some of them are great companies, they're just way out of favor, and there's no demand for SPACs. And there could be an opportunity in SPACs, for example. I go in, I put a billion or two of new equity, I ter- improve the management team, upgrade the board, and we, and we, we execute and, and build that company much bigger than the, than the original people were even thinking about. There's other opportunities of companies that are in distress. Uh, there's other companies that are great and really performing well, but could perform even better with more vision and more capital. I'm not worried about at all about finding a good opportunity. My problem is I only do one thing at a time. I'm, I'm a serial CEO, but I'm not a multi-different at the same time CEO. I can only do one thing at a time. Well, I very much look forward to seeing what's next. Brad, thank you so much for spending time with us uh, here today. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. Brad, Andy, thanks so much. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. You can find transcripts and easily explore our library of more than 120 previous podcasts on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page found at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. And please let us and others know what you thought about this podcast by rating us on your podcast player. And if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.